Welcome to the Grace Life Fellowship Podcast. This week, we'll be posting an episode each day to get you caught up on Pastor Frank's series he's doing here at Grace Life Fellowship on Galatians called Live Free. Today is the very first message from that series called Protecting the Gospel of Freedom. We hope you enjoy it. Let's open our Bibles for the first time to the book of Galatians. I want to get right to business this morning, which is exactly what this book does. And I want to do so in an effort to capture your heart and awaken your mind and put before you the seriousness and intensity of what this study we are about to embark on. In my reading, I came across the words of a man named William Henriksen. Better than anyone else I read communicated the danger that was threatening to destroy the infant church and continues to threaten to destroy it today. He used the metaphor of a mighty storm to arouse our attention and warn us against the potential for devastation that is on the horizon. A mighty storm. I mean, that's something we're all familiar with in South Louisiana, isn't it? And one thing we've learned in South Louisiana is when a mighty storm is on the horizon, we dare not be passive. We better be prepared to act. Henriksen wrote these words. He said, the spiritual atmosphere in Galatians is charged. It is sultry and sweltering. A mighty storm is threatening. The sky is darkening. In the distance, one can see flashes of lightning as the atmospheric turbulence is immediately detected. The apostle, though, is in perfect control of himself, for he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And note well that he is greatly agitated and deeply moved. His heart and mind are filled with a medley of emotion. For the ones who are perverting the gospel, there is withering denunciation springing from holy indignation. He's going on the attack. For the Galatian saints, there is marked disapproval and an earnest desire to restore. Some people are gone astray. And for the one who has called him, there is profound reverence and humble gratitude. I would say that in the heart of Galatians, we're going to see the heart of God. And the heart we're going to see is a heart that longs for men to be free. You say, well, what is this storm that would cause such intensity in the heart of Paul? I mean, we're going to see in the book of Galatians that though he is the champion of grace, he doesn't sound very gracious. That's because the grace that he champions is under attack. And what makes this attack so dangerous, my friends, is that it's coming from within the church. These are not outsiders. These are people who name the name of Jesus, but they're adding to the gospel. And in doing so, they're taking away from the gospel. 
The message they're bringing is a rational one. It makes sense to the mind of man. They're heralding that we need to follow the Old Testament law. I mean, after all, doesn't that make sense? God gave the law. It's only right that now we have Jesus, we could better able to keep the law. Please hear this. These people, and there are millions of them in the church today, and I don't believe I'm exaggerating, have failed to understand what the Bible really teaches about the issue of law and grace. The Bible teaches that law and grace are two mutually independent systems that must be kept separate and distinct in order to function the way God intended them to. When God gave the law, he told man, do this and live. Be careful to do all that the law contains. And therein lies our problem. No one can. The law did not come with any power for us to be able to keep it. It simply points out the demands and then leaves us with our own resources to meet those demands. And the problem, my friends, is you can't get life out of the law because there is no life in the law. Stones cannot give life. God himself told man, in the day that you eat from that tree, this goes all the way back to the beginning, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of a knowledge of right and wrong, the tree of achieving, the tree of method or system or principle or rule. When you do that, you shall surely die. John 5, 26 tells us that God has life in himself. There is life in no other other than God. And to try to find life in anyone or anything apart from God is to experience death. And the whole world lies under that system. That's what Romans 3.19 tells us. The mouth of the whole world is shut up under the law. And no one will be made righteous by the works of the law. Now stop and think about that. If no one can become righteous by following the law, then why did God give the law if men can't keep it? Please listen. Because the law, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, has a very specific purpose. And that is to minister to us. Isn't that a great word? The word minister means to serve. And God says in that passage in 2 Corinthians 3 that he gave the law to serve us. Well, to serve us what? To serve us death and condemnation. Isn't that exciting? He puts it so clearly in verse 6, the letter kills that law written on tablets of stone will kill you. That's what it was designed to do. Well, why would God want to kill and condemn us? Why would God give a law that ministers death and condemnation and shame and guilt? Think about it. 
He did that to keep us from a false hope of believing the lie of the garden that one day we just might make it and become like God out of our own resources. He gave it to us to keep us from a false hope that one day we might think we could become good enough to establish our own righteousness and secure life independent of God. He wanted us to have the law function like a mirror so that we could look in that mirror and see all the defect. I mean, after all, that's what you did this morning. Right? You got up and you went and looked in that mirror. Why? To see everything that was right? No, to see everything that was wrong so you could fix it. It's exactly what God was doing. He gave the law so that we would understand that we stand guilty and condemned before God, languishing in guilt and shame so that we could cry out for a better way. And in doing that, the law will have functioned in our lives by driving us away from the law to the person of Jesus Christ who alone can make us right. Galatians 2.19, my friends, one of the most neglected verses in all the Bible. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live unto God. You realize what that's saying? You're not going to live by following the law. The law was given to drive us away from the law to a better way. And the better way is the way of the new covenant where God himself makes us acceptable and right through the person of Jesus Christ and his work. He drives us to a better system, not of achieving righteousness by our own efforts, but by receiving the gift of righteousness by the grace of God. Oh, Galatians 3.24, what a great verse. It puts both purposes in one verse. The purpose of the law and the purpose of the new covenant. The law was our taskmaster, it says, to drive us to Jesus. And when we find Jesus, we find life. Because 1 John 5 says, he who has the son has the life. So here's the issue, my friends. When it comes to law and grace, law and Jesus, you have to make a choice. John 1.17 makes it very clear. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus. So the question is, who do you want to be a disciple of? Do you want to be a disciple of Moses? Or do you want to be a disciple of of Jesus. You cannot have two fathers. It's impossible. You cannot mix law and grace or you destroy them both. If you add grace to law, the law will lose its holy terror and no longer drive you away from the law to Jesus. If you add law to grace, grace will lose its freeing power as you fix your eyes on other than Jesus and back on to performing for him. Law and grace must be kept mutually exclusive to accomplish their unique and distinct purposes. And so let's state it at the outset. 
The purpose of the law is to, to kill and condemn whoever it serves in order to drive them to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's the purpose of the law. And the purpose in, of grace is to minister life and righteousness to those who have been driven by the law to Jesus. This is the gospel. And the problem, my friends, as it is today, is in Galatia there were people who were trying to mandate to believers that they must follow the old covenant law as a requirement. They are mixing law and grace and ending up with neither law nor grace. They're perverting and corrupting the gospel. They're robbing law of its power to condemn. And they're robbing grace of its power to set men free. So somebody's got to stand up. Somebody's got to draw the line in the sand. Someone has to say, this is right and this is wrong. Someone has to say, and do you know how hard to say, it is to say this? I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> but that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to do. And I hope you know it takes great courage to do that. Did you know that people do not like being told they're wrong? How many of you are married here today and could provide some testimony? <laughs> People do not like being told that all their religious good works count nothing. Try telling that to a religious zealot. Everything you do counts nothing before God. Do you realize that just might make them mad? Well, that's too bad because what they're pursuing is not the gospel. Their belief system must not be allowed to take hold in the church. This is a battle that must be fought. This is a battle that must be won. And Paul's weapon of choice is pen and paper to put it down for posterity once and for all to clarify what the good news of the gospel really is. And I put it up on the screen for you. It's twofold. The gospel is that man can be made right apart from the law by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that man, secondly, has been set free from the law as a means of both salvation and sanctification. In its essence, the book of Galatians is our declaration of independence. In this book, Paul heralds that through Jesus, we have been set free and now enjoy, experience a relationship with God. And in experiencing a free relationship with God, we will live free in that which we have received from God and never, ever Ever will we surrender to the tyranny of the law and religion again. I meet people out there in the community and they, you know, they kind of hear I'm a pastor and as we dialogue and then they look and they go, what, you? Yeah, you know, I don't look the part, but we talk about it. And they say, what's your church like? And I says, let me tell you in essence what this place is about. We love Jesus here but we are not religious. 
And then that gives me an opportunity to explain to them the glory of the grace of God that sets men free. Galatians 5.1 is the theme verse of the book of Galatians. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Isn't that a good word? The gospel for most people is it was for forgiveness of our sins that Christ died to make us free. It's bigger than that. So much bigger. It was for freedom that he died to make you free. To live free from guilt and free from shame. Free from performing. Free from people. How about the ultimate freedom? Free from yourself. To live outside of yourself in a dynamic, personal, and intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. And I trust you know that to live free, you not only have to fight to become free, you have to fight to stay free. Paul is going to champion that fight. Welcome to the book of Galatians. Our Father, Martin Luther said a long time ago, when he restored the gospel to the church, Galatians is my epistle. I pray that in our journey through it, each and every man and woman here would herald the same words. Galatians is my epistle. It is my declaration of independence. And I cherish it because it leads me to Jesus and Jesus alone as the source of my life and righteousness. Father, may your Holy Spirit open the eyes of each and every man and woman here. Not only to know they're free, but to live free. We trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Fasten your seatbelts, 24 verses. Oh, we're going to be here till 2, but, you know. <laughs> First of all, this breaks down into three very simple affirmations. First of all, in verses 1 through 5, Paul affirms his apostolic authority. If you're a student of Paul's letters, and I know you are, you know that in his letters, like to Ephesus and Colossae and Philippi, he first introduces himself. He might mention of the friends that are with him. Then he addresses his hearers as saints, and he usually adds a word of commendation, and, and sometimes he'll offer a little prayer for them. Look at those first five verses. Not here. In fact, I would share with you that this is the only letter he wrote where there is no praise, no thanksgiving, and no encouragement given to his readers. You think about that. I mean, even the immature, worldly, divisive, and immoral Corinthians got a word of consolation. Not here. This is too serious. And it is his very first priority in the very first verse to establish his credentials to write a letter such as this. He states immediately, 
I'm an apostle. I know who I am and I know what I've been called to do. And look what he adds. I've not been sent from men nor the agency of men. God himself called me to do what I'm doing. You remember that Paul was not one of the original 12. In Acts chapter 1, in order to be an apostle, you had to see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So we can surmise what's going on here in Galatia. Apparently, the proponents of adding law to the gospel were trying to discredit the message of grace by disqualifying this messenger of grace. You can hear him, can't you? You can hear them? Well, you know, Paul, oh, he's a great guy. But, you know, he, he really isn't an apostle. You know, he, he never walked with Jesus like the other ones did. So you can't expect him to fully understand what Jesus taught. And, you know, you really shouldn't look to him as your authority. You know, the poor guy, he just, he just didn't get it right. You know, but it's not his fault. He's a Johnny come lately, you know. We're from Jerusalem. You know where the real apostles are? And, and we have the full understanding of what Jesus did and did not do. So you need to listen to us because we're going to bring you the full gospel. What you need to do to be a disciple of Jesus. Paul's not going to let that happen. Jesus had personally appeared to him in Acts chapter 9. Knocked him off his high horse, you remember. And through Ananias, Ananias, Jesus declared that Saul, the former enemy of the gospel, would now become Paul, the chosen instrument of God to bring the name of Jesus to the Gentiles. And even in brief introduction right here in these first five verses, Paul is going to function in that capacity of championing grace. Their message is grace is not enough. Look what Paul does in verse 3. Grace to you. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Isn't that cool? I call that grace in your face. <laughs> I've meditated on this passage all week, and you know who he reminds me of? Tom Petty. Remember the song Tom Petty did? I will not back down. I will stand my ground. You can put me up at the gates of hell and I won't back down. That's the Apostle Paul. Grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the verse, verse 4. Who gave us the law. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. How about he gave us principles? He gave us rules. He gave us regulations. He gave us standards. Know what it says? What does it say? He gave us himself. Right from the very outset of this book, he heralds loudly and clearly what the essence of Christianity is all about. It's about a person. It's about the person of Jesus. It's about a relationship with that person. So he says, he gave himself. 
I've said it many times here. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come to this planet for the express purpose of dying for your sins, my friend. He came to get a relationship with you and dying for your sins was the only way he could get that relationship. He gave himself and in a new covenant economy, he continues to give himself. And anyone in this room who has ever experienced will herald likewise that that is enough. We don't need more than the life of Jesus himself. And look what he says. Why did he give himself? To deliver us to heaven. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. Now that's true and it's gloriously true. We all get to go to heaven someday. But he came to give us heaven now. By delivering us, freeing us from this present evil age. Came to free us from sin and guilt and shame and condemnation, which the world, especially religious world, so easily gives to us. He came to free us from bondage and fear and anxiety, which again the world so freely bestows upon us. So that having been made free, we would live free to the glory of God. Grace is the message from God that the messenger of God brought to the church. Unfortunately, that message is being maligned. And the messenger is being maligned. So he must defend not only the messenger and say, no, I am a true apostle. But he must defend the message too. And he does that in verses 6 through 10. Look at verse 6. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you. I hope you hear the pain of this man. You know, I think it's very easy to see anger in a man. But it's a little harder to see the pain that is the source of that anger. And Paul has a lot of pain here. You might want to circle that word marvel. It's thaumadzo. It means to be astounded. It means to be bewildered. You you could translate it. I I can't fathom what's happening here. If I, I could give my own interpretive translation, I would translate it like this. How could you? How could you? Remember, my friends, it was Paul that founded this church. That means he functions like a spiritual father to them. And because he functions as a spiritual father and they are his spiritual children, 3 John kicks in here. If you are a parent, You know, third John. It says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. Isn't that our greatest joy as parents? But because that's true, the flip side is equally true. I have no greater pain than to know that my children walk in lies. 
One writer put it this way, Galatians is not a theological treatise, but a deeply personal letter written from the grieving heart of a godly man for his spiritual kids. It's breaking his heart for him to see how quickly they're deserting the gospel. Is that what it says? How quickly they're deserting grace. Is that what it says? How quickly they're deserting the truth. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? Again, he affirms that the gospel is not about a rule book. The gospel is not about a code of ethics. The gospel is not about a system of behavior. He says, you are deserting him. The gospel is about a relationship. New Covenant Christianity is and always has been about having a relationship with God, about finding God as our Father through the finished work of Jesus who removed all the barriers between us and God so that we could have an intimate father-child relationship with him. And if you take just a single drop of poison and then put it in a large container of water, it will make all that water lethal. And in the same way, if you add one requirement of law to the gospel, you will establish a barrier between intimacy and peace with God. Can you imagine? Let me help you with that statement that I just made. Oh, Avery, Morgan, Leslie, Dan, I love you. Come here and let me love you. Oh, Dad, i got to do my chores first so that I'll be acceptable in your presence. Does that help? That's what's going to happen when you add requirement to grace. You forfeit intimacy with God because now there's something standing in the way of that intimacy that must be performed or you're not really acceptable. And to do that, my friends, is to establish, Paul says in verse 6 and verse 7, a different gospel that's not really a gospel because there's only one gospel, and it's the gospel of grace. I hear this all the time from people. Boy, that grace message is really special. Stop saying that. There's no such thing as a grace message that's a part of the gospel. Some add-on, it is the gospel. There is no other gospel but the gospel of grace. And there will always be those who trouble you, who seek to rob you of your freedom by distorting that gospel. Whereas God says, my son did it all. You are accepted for free. Man will come along and say, oh, no, you're not. You've got things to do. So Paul says, look what he says. Anytime. Anyone adds to the gospel of grace, even if they're adding good things like read your Bible, go to church, pray, give. They are perverting or distorting the gospel. And by the way, I don't believe those translations are really descriptive in us. It's worse than that. I would translate. You see the word distort or pervert in your Bible? In verse 7, it's the Greek word metastrophe. I would translate it differently. It really should be translated reversing. Reversing the gospel. It means to go in a totally different direction. 
I, I put this up on the screen. I hope you can catch it. In the new covenant, we who pursued law were driven away from law to grace. Add one requirement and we have turned from grace back to law. We're going the opposite direction that the Father God intended us to go. Now, I hear people all the time as I teach this, oh, Frank, this is too extreme. Don't you think we need to balance grace? Well, my dear friend, what would you balance it with? It's impossible to balance grace because grace is a person. Titus chapter 2 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Who brought salvation to all men? Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God. You cannot change grace or you will have changed Jesus. That's why the grace of God doesn't need to be balanced. Because the life of Jesus is already a balanced life. That's why Titus 2 goes on to say the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and live soberly and righteously in this present age. So if you're not living soberly and righteously, you can't blame grace. <laughs> you got to blame yourself. Because <laughs> you're not laying hold of the balanced life of Christ. And that is why in the New Testament we're told that we've received the abundance of grace. And grace upon grace. Because in Colossians 2, when we received him, we received the fullness of him. So I trust you see why this book is so important. Anytime anyone adds anything to the gospel of grace, listen, please, they're actually drawing people away from Jesus to fix their eyes on something else. My friends, if ever there was a passage where law could have been offered as a requirement, it's Acts 16. You know the passage. Remember the story? Paul was in prison. He'd been beaten and tortured for preaching the gospel. In the stocks, he was singing praises to God for counting them worthy to suffer for Christ. And the Philippian jailer heard that singing, and I'm sure it boggled his mind. Later that night, God sends a mighty earthquake, opens the prison's doors. The Philippian jailer, believing his prisoners have escaped, by the way, that would be normality, draw his sword to take his own life rather than have his life taken from him by the authorities for losing his prisoners. Just as he's about to impale himself on his sword, the apostle Paul cries out, do yourself no harm. We're all here. And what did the Philippian jailer do? With his blown mind, he runs to Paul and asks the question of all questions. What must I do to be saved. And what did Paul say? Accept Jesus and follow the law. Is that what he said? No. He said, believe. Receive. Accept. Open your arms and say, thank you for what Jesus has done. Do that. And you'll be saved. That's the good news. And that's the kind of news that needs to be protected. So with the battle lines drawn, Paul declares war. 
And like a doctor fighting against a disease, he fights to win. I hope you know that if you're going to be in a fight, you don't fight gently. You drop the gloves. Look what he does in verse 8. Even if an angel from heaven, did you see that? He doesn't say an angel from hell. He doesn't say a demon. He says an angel from heaven. We're talking about a really good angel, a righteous angel. But if that angel brings a gospel other than the grace of God, let him be anathema, which means damned. Look at verse 9. If any man brings a gospel other than the grace of God, and this could be a really nice guy. It could be a gifted guy. A great speaker, a funny speaker. Man, we all love that. No matter how many degrees he says, Paul says, no matter how big his church, television, or radio audience is, if he adds anything to the grace of God as a requirement of the gospel, let that man be accursed. Verse 10 says in my Bible, for, I don't like that translation. I really think it'd be better translated there. Thomas said, Paul says, there, do I sound like a man pleaser now? Do I, do I sound like I'm trying to gain the favor of men with what I just said? You see, that's one of the common accusations made against those who teach grace. Oh, they're trying to be popular. They're trying to build a crowd. They preach that easy believism, cheap grace. First of all, my friends, there's no such thing as cheap grace. Bringing the grace of God to man costs Jesus his life. You really want to say that's cheap? Are you that arrogant? Secondly, there's nothing easy about living in grace. To live in grace means you deny your own resources to trust the resources of Christ. Do you know how hard that is? And thirdly, proclaiming the grace of God will cost you personally. As we noted earlier, religious people don't like grace. The grace of God undermines the foundation of good works they've been so carefully building. And rather than repent of what they're doing, they would rather remove the one who's undermining what they do. Paul has experienced this religious hatred personally. Look at verse 10 as he winds it up. He says, if I was trying to please men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 4, a little-known passage, Paul removes the romance of what it means to be an apostle, the fantasy of it. You know, we can look at apostles and, and kind of get this romantic picture of what they were like. Oh, no, 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 no. He, he, he puts it real. Listen to this. God has exhibited us apostles as men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world. We are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. We are without honor. To this present hour, we're hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. We have become as the scum of the world. That's what it means to be an apostle. Grace has not brought him popularity, my friends. It's brought him persecution. And so in 11 to 24, in the final two, three minutes, still in the age of miracles, <laughs> he shares his own testimony of freedom and the provision of the grace of God. Verses 11 and 12, he says, not only is my apostleship from God, my message is from God. No one taught it to me. It was revealed to me by Jesus. 
And when he did that, verses 13 through 16, I was set free from my past life. Can you relate? Have you been set free from your past life? Can you put a price tag on that? Well, let me ask this question. Can you not talk about it? Paul says, I was a fanatical rabbi. I was a runaway freight train destroying everything in my path. I sought to destroy the church with a scorched earth policy. But God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Did you hear the language? He doesn't say he revealed the son to me. He says he revealed the son in me. And Paul never got over that. Is there anyone in this room that can ever get over that? That God took who I was and how I lived and said, that's not the end of the story. I'm going to make you so right that I will take up residence inside you. And you will become the temple of the living God. You will be my address. Paul says, I was set free from my past life. And then he says, I was set free in my present life. The rest of the chapter says he went from the school of man to the school of God. He went away to Arabia for three years to live in the desert so that he could discover the living waters of God from God. Listen to this. This is very important. He does not intend to borrow the revelation of others. He seeks his own revelation. He wants to declare what God taught him personally and did for him personally. And by the way, he was in Arabia for three years. That's fascinating. How long was Jesus with the apostles? Three years. <laughs> Try telling Paul he's not an apostle. <laughs> then he went to Damascus where people were trying to kill him. Then he went to Jerusalem where people were trying to kill him. Then he went to Syria and Cilicia where people were trying to kill him. This is radical, my friends. By nature, people seek to protect their lives. To escape ridicule. To avoid pain. But he will write in 2 Corinthians 5.9, Above all else, my ambition is to please him. He will later write, your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your life. He will meet Peter and James for just a short time who will witness firsthand the miracle of Christ in Saul, transforming him into Paul. And it will end this chapter by saying to the rest of the churches, he will only be known by reputation, but it's a reputation of transformation. He lives so free and so new that people know him now more for who he is than who he was. Yeah, hallelujah. And they will say, this one who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. I want to share some, some thoughts of application, just two. I think most of us have people in our lives that we really have a burden for to come to Christ, but they are desperately locked in their sin 
and full bore into the world. And it's so very easy for you and I to doubt that those kinds of people are really going to ever come to Christ. And I want to share with you that Paul stands as a stark reminder that no one is too far gone for the grace of God to reach. If you're here this morning, you think, oh, the Frank, that sounds so good, but God could never love me, not with what I've done. The Apostle Paul, have you traveled the world trying to murder Christians? If the grace of God can save him, it can save your piddly backside. The second thing I would share with you is don't let your past define you anymore. The grace of God is bigger than your sin and failure. In Christ, that's not who you are anymore. In Christ, you're a brand new creation of God. He calls you saint, holy one of God. Then finally, well, if that's who you are, then let's live it. Let's live in the transforming power of the grace of God in Christ so that others will glorify God because of you. You know, years ago, I ran into a good friend of my dad's. Hadn't seen him in a long time. Really neat guy. You know how it is when you haven't seen somebody for a long time. Frank! And then he grabbed me by the shoulders and he pushed me back. Is it true? I said, what are you talking about? I heard that you, you had found God and, 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 and gone to preacher school. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I, I have to hear it from you. Is it true? Yeah, it's true. Are you kidding me? You were the most godless man I ever saw in an athletic field. And then he said this, there must be a God. That's the challenge from Galatians 1. God secured your freedom. He set you free from your past. He set you free from you. So that Christ could now be your life. Go live so free of sin and guilt and shame and condemnation and religious bondage and performance and live so free in joy and peace and life that when people look at you, they have to say, there must be a God because I see him. In you. I see him in you. Father, thank you for this book of Galatians. Thank you for the power of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for his uncompromising stance to stand against religious bondage and all the whims and, and, and of man that would try to enslave us and and get us to perform for man and, and, and perform for you. When the reality is, you want to do the performing in and through us. 
as we trust you by faith in the glory of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. May we so live that people truly say there is a God. I see him in the saints of Grace Life Fellowship. So be it in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thanks for joining us today for the first message in a series on Galatians from Pastor Frank. We'll be back again tomorrow with the second message titled Freedom Fighter. In the meantime, be sure to like and share this message. And if you'd like to support our podcast ministry, please consider donating at gracelifefellowship.org give. Thanks, and we'll see you again tomorrow.